If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hi folks, how are you? Hope you've had a good week and um, welcome along to another episode of my podcast, Soundtracking. Um, I'm actually just back from uh, a two-week road trip around the homeland, visiting places in parts of Scotland that I've never been to. Um, places like Cambus Darich and um, Maleg and the Isle of Skye, Flodigari. Oh, it was extraordinary. And the wonderful thing was that I... I don't know, I felt like really inspired by lots of places and it reminded me of lots of films along the way. So if anybody follows me on Instagram, they'll have seen me um, reciting various kind of film quotes or soundtracks or reminiscing about films from different parts that I've encountered on the road trip. But I literally just landed back home, took slightly longer than expected. Be careful out there, folks, on the roads if you are touring around for your holidays. It's uh, it's lovely to be back. Um, we've got loads of exciting stuff coming up for you over the next few weeks on the podcast. And this week is um, particularly exciting. It's a triple header on this week's soundtracking as I'm joined first by friend of the show, the lovely Edgar Wright, to discuss his first foray into documentary filmmaking, The Sparks Brothers, and then by Russell and Ron themselves. Can you hear the giddiness in my voice? The groundbreaking duo who've been breaking the mould for, oh, I mean, close to half a century, really. Decades. Now, as well as getting the lowdown on his doc from Edgar, Russell and Ron, we also find out about Annette, the screen musical written by the brothers, which stars Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard and was directed by Lewis Carax. It recently showed at Cannes Film Festival to, well, a lot of very good reviews. I've seen it. I loved it. More on that later. But before all that, a word from our very dear friends at Grass & Co. Now, Grass & Co are a premium CBD range of the finest quality, sustainably sourced and blended with complementary botanical ingredients like chamomile, ginger, turmeric and ashwagandha, which not only make it taste lovely, but also help relax your mind and soothe your body. And we could all do with a little bit of that right now. Now, I want to make a few things clear uh, for some of you who might not be aware of what CBD is and its benefits. CBD stands for cannabidiol, which is a natural extract of the hemp plant, and it's both legal and non-intoxicating. Now, as regular listeners to the show well, no, I am a genuine fan of this brand. Why do I use it? Well, to make the day a little bit easier. I find it helps with lots of things, anxiety, stress, and definitely sleeping. So maybe now's the time for you to give CBD a go. And if so, I can highly recommend the Grass & Co products. Now, there are three ranges, Calm, Rest, and Ease. And I'm particularly fond of the Calm range, which also comes with complementary products like aromatherapy candles, pillow spray, or great for any muscle issues, their CBD balm. They're all there to help you with your daily routine, bringing a touch of tranquility to whatever lays ahead for you. 
Grass & Co. CBD oils contain no trace of THC and all the CBD products are totally legal to buy, consume and supply in the UK. Interested? Then find your calm with 25% off plus free shipping. That's at grassandco.com forward slash sound. So visit grassandco.com forward slash sound and use the discount code sound at checkout to claim 25% off the entire Grass and Co ranges. And so to Edgar, before we then hear from the Sparks Brothers themselves. And we'll begin with the title track from one of Edgar's favourite albums, Angst in My Pants. I hope it doesn't show, it'll go away. It's just a passing phase, it'll go away. You can't just have a puppy in the room and <gasps> the only thing that could go wrong is if somebody comes to the door which they sometimes do he does it go goes back shit crazy that's yes. all right no worries um how are you i'm good i'm good awesome i just found out that my documentary is showing at the Cannes film festival tomorrow and i can't go but apart from that i'm fine i mean what a, a weird year is i i've now had this film in the sundance film festival which didn't have a physical screening and then it just they just suddenly announced that it was showing tomorrow at Cannes. And I was like, oh, I can't be there, guys. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> can you be there? Can they kind of create a, what about an Edgar Wright hologram to appear on stage? I'm sure I could zoom in, but I actually thought that because Ron and Russell are going to be there, it might be funnier if they just read something out from me. Yeah. Just an intro. It's not like there's a Q&A or anything, but it's fine. I've come to terms with it. I was really nervous about chatting to them this morning. I don't know why. I just, I, I think it's because they're, well, they're just like, they're sparks and they're awesome and cool. And, uh, but they were so, so lovely. I had such a lovely chat with them this morning. Yeah. I mean, are we, are we going now? Cause I could tell you a story about when I, we first met. Um, yeah. If you want to tell me that story. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I felt a similar way. I know what you mean about meeting Ron and Russell. The irony is that they're like the nicest guys in rock. <laughs> But because they're sparks, like growing up, people like David Bowie, R.I.P., or Kate Bush, or Sparks, you they feel like they're not on planet Earth. You don't yeah. feel that they in the same world as you. So it's always a bit strange the idea that they might be mortal beings. <laughs> and how this started to come about is, is partly because of this. Is that we can talk about how I got into Sparks, but I guess I guess in more recent years, I've become like a full-on evangelist for Sparks in the <laughs> sense that anybody within, within my earshot, if they hadn't heard Sparks, I would put Sparks on. And that happened like about six years ago when I was writing Baby Driver in LA, my friend Michael Bacall, the screenwriter of um, 21 Jump Street, he was helping me out for a day. And 
you know, I just said, hey, I mean, it was after FFS had just come out, the Franz Ferdinand Sparks album. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, have you, have you, do you know any Sparks? And he only knew one song, um, All I Ever Think About Is Sex, which was something that he'd heard on a compilation tape and never heard another Sparks song. As soon as I heard that, I was like, oh my God, let me play some Sparks. So I was playing him Kimono My House, you know, number one in heaven, the album, um, FFS and other ones. And then three albums in, I sort of thought aloud something which I probably should have thought of years before. I thought, oh, I wonder if Sparks are on Twitter. And again, you just think that like Sparks are too, maybe they're too cool to be on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. so I found their page and it said, Sparks follows you. And I was like, <laughs> oh my god and I felt a like a dummy that I had not been following them in the first place so number one I followed them back hey is this really the band or like <laughs> management because I'm such a huge fan and Russell replied and said no this is Russell we're big fans of your movies and I said wow that's amazing I love all your work loving FFS they said, where are you based? I said, I'm in Los Angeles at the moment. They said, well, we live in Los Angeles. I said, well, I said, I'm flying in a couple of days. Maybe we could get breakfast or something. And they said, let's do that. So like then within like 32 hours, I'm sitting opposite Ron and Russell for breakfast at Russell's <laughs> house. And again, like sort of, so I'd known who they were since I was five years old and just sitting opposite them. I mean, you interviewed them earlier, but there was that thing where they're sort of like the... The fact, the fact that they're so nice and normal seems to make it extra weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just like that. They're, they're very enigmatic, but they're sort of enigmatic in how normal they are because they they both like they can they ne- they don't let you down like some of your favorite artists when you meet them in person. They say never meet your heroes. Sparks are not like that because I think, and maybe the documentary bears this out, is that the line between Ron and Russell and Sparks has become permanently blurred over the years. And their kind of total devotion to being Sparks and working and working constantly, if they're not touring, they're working, whether it's on a new Sparks album or like an opera or whatever, you know, like, and so... I was sort of keenly aware of this, getting to know them a little bit. And there was also that thing that was like, there wasn't a nagging thing in me that there was, that I thought that there was anything, you know, dark and mysterious behind the curtain. It was more that I was like really beguiled by the fact that they had this almost monastic approach to being sparks in terms of that they had their blinkers on and they're kind of in this bubble, just being sparks and writing Mm -hmm. sparks music. And it was different because when you meet, well, you, you know, you know, rock stars, you're married to one, you know, like, so like um, you know, sometimes when you meet rock stars, they're, they're, they're off the clock and it's sort of like somehow like less, less interesting because they're not like, when you meet them, they're not working. But Sparks always <laughs> seem to be working all the time. Yeah. Um, and I was really sort of taken by that. And also 
So there were little things as well that I thought were amusing. Number one was that I started to think they don't live together, but there's definitely like a feeling that they're like rocks, Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street. In terms of they seem sort of permanently joined <laughs> at the hip in the sense, and this is true, this is before the age of Zoom, but I've seen Russell without Ron twice. But I have never seen Ron without Russell. <laughs> and there's this thing where they're not identical twins, but they, they sort mm. of always be kind of coordinated in what they're wearing. They known each other you know there's a joke in the film is like how did you first meet with brothers but like they they know when to answer they don't talk over each other they're also unusually for brothers in rock in comparison to say noel and liam gallagher or like ray and dave davis or everly brothers or like barry and robin gibb when robin Mm -hmm. was still alive they're not in competition to be the star they know what the each other can do and they're kind of comfortable with that is that like Ron has no aspirations as he says in the documentary to be the lead and Russell sort of you know sort of defers to his older brother Ron so they kind of have seemingly as far as I can see and as far as everybody else that's worked with them a very healthy approach and I mean they've said themselves that if they weren't brothers they would never have done 25 hours together. So there's obviously this kind of like strong sort of bond and shared sense of humor and sensibility. I mean, they're also, it's funny, it's not in the documentary, but Flea said something. It's not in the documentary, but it is in the documentary actors, but he said that they're like the Cohen brothers of rock. Joel and Ethan Cohen, like Joel kind of takes the director credit and Ethan takes the producer credit and they share writing credit, but essentially they do do everything together. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's just kind of like an agreement they have. And there's an, a sense with Sparks, like in, in recent years, they share all songwriting credits because, you know, mostly Ron writes the lyrics, but Russell has written a lot of lyrics as well. And more recently, they just have a thing where they, it's just shared credit as Sparks. And that's what, you know, Annette is as well. And I just think they obviously just kind of have a really sort of healthy outlook on how to be in each other's pockets for like yeah. 70 years. <laughs> I love the fact that within 32 hours, not only are you going for breakfast with them, but round to Russell's house, which is amazing. Not like to Soho House or something. That's amazing. At which point I would clearly be trying to get as much information as I could about them looking at libraries. What do they watch? What do they listen to? All that kind of stuff would be my first kind of protocol when I get there to the house. I wonder if you would say. Well, it sort of came up organically in conversation. The, the, the sort of first thing that I realised about them is that they're massive film geeks. And so there was an element where I sort of, in, and, you know, I don't mean to kind of like put words into their mouth, but I sort of felt, oh, I feel like we would have been friends if we'd have been at college. (laughs) Into all the same things. And so that was really nice because they they knew all my films and stuff and that was very flattering. And I did tell them, which was kind of, I sort of had to tell them, but it was true. It's like, you know, because some people have said when I've been doing this press tour, said, oh, you've never used a Spark song in any of your movies. And I said, well, there's a good reason for that. It's that I did try and put uh, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us into Hot Fuzz. And in the scene where Timothy Dalton and Simon Pegg are fighting in a model village, this town ain't big enough for the both of us in a model village. It makes sense. However, Sparks, and this is like a compliment to them, Sparks are not background music. Sparks no. sort of demand undivided attention. And it's mostly not just the music itself, but the lyrical content. 
when you're listening to a spark song and this is something that like for a lot of people is part of the obsession and maybe for the more mainstream AOR listener who wants to just listen to radio one and not have to eat their vegetables there is an element of spark sometimes when people think wait what is this song about because sometimes you're listening to a song and then you're thinking there's something going on with these lyrics that I don't understand and Neil Gaiman talks about it in the movie like yeah he was convinced that many of the songs were filthy and sort of decided to try and decode them like Chaucer poem. <laughs> um, so there's an element where like, I think sort of like somebody says in the documentary, that sparks cannot be fully, you can enjoy the music, but they can't be fully appreciated at face value because they don't always in their lyrical content do the easiest subject matter or usually it's subject matter that once you start to analyze it like a great poem, it's like, oh yeah, this makes sense. When you first listen to This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, it's like the onslaught of the kind of the full-on operatic style is just like incredibly like engaging and diverting. And then it's like maybe after like several listens or maybe even years, you think, wait, what is this song about? (laughs) And then you start to read the lyrics and then it's like, oh, okay. So it's about, it's a song that's about a man trying to go on a date in a town where there are more men than women. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. At some point, it's going to end up in a showdown because there are not enough dates to go around. Um, (laughs) And then on top of that, the narrator of the song is so kind of like stricken with anxiety about getting a date that he seems to imagine these nightmare scenarios which would stop him from having a date, a plane crash, a bomb, cannibals attacking. And then you think, this was a number two hit. listen to that song and they know the music and how to hum it and they know the chorus I feel that's one of the reasons why so many people wanted to talk about them why if they weren't as massive as like Queen were in the day you know a band who supported them on their first UK tour Queen supported Sparks you know it's because like so Queen would probably find more kind of like direct ways to be emotional in a way that anybody can understand the song find me somebody to love sparks are sort of kind of always in the and i think in a heroic way making it difficult for themselves by doing songs where you listen to it and you enjoy the tune then you're thinking wait what is he singing about is it dirty is amateur hour really dirty
like is like never turn your back on mother earth about the dangers of like destroying the planet or is it about the fact that the earth is a brutal mistress that will kill you with when your back is turned and it's the latter yeah well it's a clever thing that they do where they almost have like levels of intensity for depending on what type of fan you are so whether yeah. you are a kind of surface level oh, i'm just going to enjoy the tune and have a dance and sing along with the chorus or whether you want to go deep they almost kind of give you different levels of fandom that you can have with them with their songwriting i honestly think that one of the reasons that sparks have got such longevity is number one they kept making great new music unlike a lot of their peers you know a lot of bands who and it's partly because they haven't had the same mainstream success as some of those other bands. If they've never sort of really had a chance to rest on their laurels and they don't want to, you know, bands like the Who or the Rolling Stones have been going for like six decades. You know, at a certain point, they're just doing a greatest hits tour forever. And Sparks have sort of never really done that. They rarely look back. It's partly because they sort of like, they've still got something to prove. And then the other part of it, I think, is why people obsess about them and they have a growing fan base is because there's a lot, a lot to unpack in what they look like, in the album covers, in the lyrics, in the music. It's like other bands that maybe were like enormous in the 70s, like the Eagles, you know, they're great, but there's absolutely nothing to say about them beyond like listening to the song they're also stuck in that era though that's the thing like with the eagles they're stuck in that era whereas sparks are this kind of constantly almost like regenerating kind of brilliant creative thing that even though they try different things it's never it's never so stuck in that moment that it doesn't feel relevant 20 years later i think that's the brilliant one one of the many brilliant things about them i think it's also the reason why it doesn't seem to me that they've ever been had the time to be bitter about bands that have in, been influenced by them doing so much better than them because yeah. they've already moved on themselves. Yeah. Like if you were like sort of like doing the glam rock sound and then like a T-Rex, you kind of kept doing the same thing and then Queen come along and sort of take elements of that and become, and I love Queen, by the way. I'm not saying that Queen are the Sparks for a pop, but there's definitely like similarities yeah. When you listen to the first couple of albums to the first couple of Queen albums. But then Queen has sort of synthesized that into something else. But Sparks don't have any time to be bitter about it because in that time themselves, they're already like three genres on. <laughs> you know, they've already like moved yeah. on like four paces and uh, doing something else. And, and the glam rock thing is not interesting to them either. They're already like doing a proto-punk album or they're doing <laughs> an, like, opera. A, an opera. <laughs> Or they're doing like, you know, the Georgia Moroda album from 1979, Number One in Heaven, is like them as a synth pop duo, two years before like Soft Cell, two years before Depeche Mode, you know, several years before the Pesha Boys and Yazoo. And it's like, and they sort of created the template for that. Yeah. Not just the music, but aesthetically, what a Top of the Pops performance. You know, they basically predicted most of Top of the Pops in the 80s in 1979. <laughs>
the film, what you've managed to do is that I feel like I learned so much about them as a band and as individuals and their journey, but there's still an, an enigma around them. And I love that that's, it, it's so clever. I don't know how you've been able to do that, but you have kind of almost sort of allowed us to explore so much about them, but still kept an, a sort of curtain of enigma around them, which is so important, I think, because that's part of, I think what's so wonderful about them. Well, I think that was a kind of like, there was a twofold thing to that is that it, it's something which, you know, like they're a band that fans hold very dear to them. And some of them would like to think this is, this is my thing. And yeah. I'm glad it's not bigger than it is because this is my thing. On the flip side, most of those fans would also agree is like these guys deserve more accolades than they have. Not that they haven't been successful through the years because they have, but still, part of the reason that I wanted to make the movie is I felt like this was the best, most influential band that did not have a documentary about them. And I felt at a certain point, I felt I've seen documentaries about bands that I think are a tenth as good as Sparks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why don't Sparks have a documentary? So in, in a weird way, that's how the documentary came about, because I kept saying out loud without thinking who that person would be saying somebody should do a documentary about Sparks. <laughs> like, oh my God, like they've got such an amazing story. So influential, got so many kind of famous fans who would kind of like go on record saying that Sparks influenced them. Why isn't somebody doing a Sparks documentary? And, and when I was at a Sparks gig in 2017 with Phil Lord, oh, Lord. director of um, the Lego movie and uh, 21 Jump Street and others, I was saying this spiel to him saying like, the only thing stopping Sparks from being as big as they should be is like some kind of overview. So that even like fans of the band, let alone people who don't know who they are, could sort of see the whole story. And he goes, you should make that movie. And I said, yeah, I will. And then the gig, then the gig happened. By the way, when we were having this discussion, we were standing in between Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols and Tony Basil of Hey, Mickey, you're so fine fame. The first single I ever bought, along with Prince, when Doves Cry. There you go. That, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good twofer. So I spent the gig, then the 90 minutes of the gig, thinking about it. And then that night, I said to Ronald Russell, said, hey, I want to talk to you about something. And then the next day, I phoned him and said, well, has anybody ever approached you about doing a documentary? Because I think I'd like to do one. And it wasn't until that moment that I thought that I was going to make a documentary, full stop. And B, as soon as I'd said it out loud to them, I couldn't go back on that promise. <laughs> so I said this to them without any idea of who might finance and make the movie. <laughs> or what it would be, I guess, as well at that point. Because that's the, you know, I've I've watched, like you said earlier, there are a lot of music documentaries out there, some some good, some some not so good. But this just feels like so really unique in terms of how you've how you've worked the the, the narrative both in terms of visually putting yourself in there as well you know in terms of I just want to say on record I just want to say on record for the one or two reviews that said that I shouldn't have been on there the only reason I was in it is because a, a another director who shall remain nameless flaked and left us with four hours of studio time so I said well you could interview me <laughs> oh I think it's great that you're in it, it absolutely because it comes from because I think that that's the great thing is you feel like you're on a journey with the band almost as a fan of themselves in a weird way kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's, I just think it's, it's, and there's so many great little elements to it as well in terms of the animation and the manga stuff and all that. I think it's such a great 
journey on this this was it how and what did you informed how you would tell their story well two things and there's more i want to answer your question before which i didn't <laughs> but like in terms of the journey that was the thing that was interesting about it is because like okay like a band like the beatles like become immediately world famous in 1964 so everybody around the world in 63-64 knows who the beatles are sparks have a strange kind of like evolution because even within their own success they're not famous necessarily in the same country at the same time mm -hmm. and what i mean is that there's success in like the uk in the mid 70s and late 70s and then success in the states particularly in the west coast in the early 80s when in the uk they had just sort of disappeared they did not tour in the uk between 1975 and 1994 it did like a couple of tv appearances like wogan and tvam and, and wow. Top of the Pops in 1979 and that was kind of it so what was interesting about that and because around the time that i first thought of it i've been working both in london and los angeles and so i had an idea even before the documentary of that sparks means different things to different people so that Sparks fans of a certain age be, oh my God, come on in my house, this town ain't big enough for the both of us on the pops. Or me, or somebody like Bernard Butler, who's around the same age as me, who remembers the same thing, remembers Beat the Clock, or Number One in Heaven on top of the pops. You know, kind of too young to remember the mid-70s stuff. Los Angeles and you mentioned Sparks today oh my god angst in my pants a 1982 new wave album one of my favorite albums of all time they don't even necessarily know about the 70s stuff so there was this was a band that kind of were like sort of like had pockets of success and influence in different places at different times and I don't think even for me it was really until a well a when they came back in the mid 90s in the UK with when do I get to sing my way which was on and a lot of TV shows and they made TV appearances and I was like, oh wow, it's Sparks from guys from 1979, you know, like the Beat the Clock guys. They're back and they look amazing. No, no use in lecturing them or in threatening them. They will just say, who are you? Is that a question or not? And you see that the plot is predictable, not new. But just to stun that the things you will do No, no use in taking their time Or in wasting two times On a call to God knows who When all you feel is the rain And it's hard to be made When no person looks at you So just be gracious and wait in the queue
then also I think that the, something like the internet, people forget how lucky they are that now they have an entire discography, maybe illegally for free at their fingertips. Not illegally. How should we put it? I'm just thinking about the broken record. Equally. Maybe the artist should be paid more for people having free discographies. Yeah. Discography, <laughs> yeah. Credit to broken re- hashtag broken record. People don't know how lucky they are to have an entire discography at their fingertips or just be able to go on to Wikipedia or all music and just read everything about an artist. Before then, in the before times, as we'll remember, is that you had to do a bit more detective work to figure out uh, if, unless a band was really huge, like say a band like Sparks before the internet, you would either have to rely on what was on the telly, on the radio, may or may not be in your local record shop, what may or may not be in a music magazine, mm-hmm. and what uh, books might be in the in the library. Like in my library in Wells, Somerset, the only music book they had was the Guinness Book of Hit Singles. And so I could sort of look at the Sparks singles, but even that didn't tell the whole story. So it was something where, in that sense, the idea of the journey of the movie, what's kind of fun about it, is that in different decades, it's different people and it kind of keeps on going. So it's like in the early 70s, there's like sort of um, Pamela Del Bares and Todd Rundgren. And then in the mid 70s, then sort of like who's watching at home? Oh, it's the Sex Pistols and members of Joy Division and members of Squeeze. And then you come to the 80s and who's watching now? It's Flea and it's Beck. And it just keeps on going and going and going, you know right up until people like Jack Antonoff who become a fan in the last 20 years, you know? Yeah. I can't wait to go and see it again in the cinema actually when it comes out. I just kind of, I think it's kind of, it, it warrants being seen on a big screen. I'm really looking forward to, to when it's released here in the UK and I can I can do that. And because there's so much music in the film as well, which is just so great that highlights that kind of journey that you just, that you've just talked about. Well, it was an, it was an important thing to, to, to say actually, you know, one, if I have a bugbear about some music documentaries is that a lot of them assume prior knowledge. Yeah. That's okay if it's the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan. But sometimes, and I don't want to mention any names of documentaries, I can think of at least two I saw recently where they were great documentaries, but if you didn't already know the songs, the films gave you no chance to fall in love with the songs or the artists. So with this, I was very conscious that, like, maybe if eight out of 10 people don't know who Sparks are, is like, let them hear the songs, let them kind of like, let those songs burrow into their brain. So that was a really big part of it was that sort of like, you know, you're going to cover 50 years of music through, you know, many different kind of genres and let people hear it. And and that's always a fascinating thing to me for people who are watching the film experiencing sparks for the first time is is what songs they take away as like oh you know and it, and it's interesting i even asked that on social media for people who watched it who didn't already know the band what yeah. songs were stuck with you and and it's really sort of diverse list it's not just the kind of the obvious big hits it's like songs like my baby's taking me home which is a brilliant track from little beethoven um which basically repeats the same lyrics throughout the entire song and it and it's kind of a hypnotic amazing anthem you know Home, my baby's taking me home. Home, my baby's taking me home. My baby's taking me home. Home, my baby's taking me home. 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 My
I'm just I'm going to ask you another question, but if it looks like I'm moving, it's because I'm being thrown out of this meeting room at Soho House and I'm going to go and sit over the thing, but I'm going to put myself on mute whilst you answer it. And um, I want to ask about their 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 other film, because this is the great thing now that you've both got these two productions, you know, you've got the doc and then we've got the film coming. Um, uh, I'm in Soho and then you've got, and they've got the doc and Annette. What's your, you've seen Annette. Tell me what your reaction to Annette is. So when I first met Sparks for Coffee, they mentioned in passing, and I remember Ron Mayle said, oh, keep this under your hat, but we might be doing a movie musical with Leos Carax. And I was like, because I was a huge Leos Carax fan and I really loved Holy Motors, his previous movie. So I was like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a dream movie to have like Leos Carax and Sparks together. So that was six years ago. And what's amazing is that even as we went into production on the Sparks Brothers, Annette was not definitely being greenlit. So it's actually when I was shooting last night in Soho in the summer of 2019, that suddenly I got word that like Annette was happening and it was greenlit. And so as soon as I knew that it was, as soon as I knew that it was kind of happening, I said to like our producers said, hey, we got to go to Brussels and shoot on the set of Annette, which was actually the last bit of filming that I did for the movie and also the last time I saw Ronald Russell in person because then, then the pandemic hit. Um, I wanted to know if throughout the process you involved them or whether it was a case of obviously because you were on the road with them for times and with them for times to interview them and film them whilst they were playing all that kind of stuff but in terms of the process of putting this making this film did you involve them in that process or did you want to kind of kind of keep them slightly at arm's length? You know what, and this actually answers the question that uh, you asked before, which I forgot to answer. <laughs> it's like, the, no, I mean, really, they let me kind of get on with it in the sense of like, I had access to them. Like, I interviewed them, aside from following them around the world. So I went to Japan and Mexico and did stuff with them in LA and London, like four different kind of countries. And then I also did interviews in New York as well. And also interviewed them at length. I think the sort of the actual interviews with them must have been about nine hours because, you know, there's 50 years of stuff to talk about, more than 50 years of stuff to talk about. You know, and the only thing that they said, they and also they let me kind of like, it's not like they were, sometimes you get on music documentaries that you have the artist be producers on the movie. And then sometimes you wonder kind of how, when it's that authorised, you wonder if there's kind of stuff that's been left out, you know. So to their credit to them, the only thing that they said to me early on, which I thought was, is that they didn't really want to talk about relationships, particularly like current ones. And I thought that's absolutely fair. And that sort of speaks to what you're saying before about, you know, how do you tell the whole story at Sparks, but let them remain enigmatic because like they don't need to talk about their relationships or sexuality. It's not kind of like, 
important that fans know that. And also, if anything, it kind of lets them be more inclusive in a way that like sort of that they they don't have to kind of like sort of state anything really. So I think sort of fans actually like that aspect about them. You know, so if there's a thing where at the end of the movie that parts of their personal life are a bit of a question mark, I think that's exactly how Ron and Russell would like it. <laughs> so, and to credit to them though, is that there are a couple of bits in the documentary where details about relationships do come through. And they're some of my favorite bits because they can't quite get through their diplomatic version of events without <laughs> breaking. <laughs> and there's one of my favorite bits in the documentary is when that happens is where Russell has decided to talk about something in a very diplomatic way. And you can see Ron in the side of the screen sort of like smirking, saying, mm, really? Like, and credit to them, they didn't ask me to take those bits out. I mean, there wasn't anything they asked me to cut and... You know, the thing that they were really helpful with, apart from just access, was that there's a lot of archive that they had that, like, had, they're really good hoarders of their own stuff. So they had a ton of their own archive, including things like Russell's student film and, like, photos of them doing kind of, like, high school sports and stuff, which seeing Russell as a high school jock quarterback is quite amazing. So um, weird. What's also funny about Russell's student film, which is a French New Wave spoof called Trey Sirius, which he made at UCLA, is I saw that and I emailed Russell, I said, what's really crazy about this short is I made exactly the same short when I was 18 at art college. And I made a French New Wave spoof called Brainless, a Buddha Lemon Souffle. And it was basically exactly the same movie. And I sent it to him and, and we just thought that was hilarious that like decades apart, we'd basically done the same French New Wave spoof. I guess maybe every aspiring filmmaker makes a French New Wave spoof. I think there needs to be a film festival that showcases all of those um, <laughs> short films for sure. Listen, I know we've got um, another film to look forward to from you. Uh, and I, I'm uh, sorry about the noise in the background. Um, there's a lot of, as you know, constant work going on in Soho and because that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode when you have time about your new film which is going to be when when are you when's it coming out comes out in the UK in October the 29th amazing can you tell me anything I'll tell you that it's set in the modern day and in the 60s and Thomas and Mackenzie's character has grown up with her grandmother her, her mother is no longer with her she's going out with her grandmother and and because of that her grandmother who's played by rita tushingham in the movie she sort of inherited her 60s record collection so it's that thing because i was a little bit like this when i was a kid is that like my parents record collection they seemed to stop buying records when they had me and my brother they had sort of like a small but good collection of 60s records that seemed to stop with like Bridge Ever Trouble Water in 1970 and then they didn't buy any other albums like no, no there were no like 70s albums at all and so I used to kind of like listen to their records all the time because because they didn't really listen to them anymore so there's that weird thing of like I used to be a bit like that where in the 80s and 90s I was listening to a lot of 60s and 70s music because I a I liked it but b it was something to sort of obsess about and so I like this idea of having a character who because she's grown up with her grandmother has sort of like become obsessed with her record collection, which is from like, you know, 60 years ago. So it's sort of the jumping off point in a way, the music to sort of take you back to that time 
And in, in, I guess in a way, there's that thing where a lot of people, myself included, have like time travel fantasies or the, the fantasy of being in a previous decade. And I guess the sort of like the, the movie is that in terms of like, I can't travel back to the 60s. So making a film about them is like the closest thing. But <laughs> everything comes with a price and there's a, a care for what you wish for element to it as well, of course. I can't wait to see it and I can't wait to to get to talk to you about that as well. And thank you for your patience today and for your time as well, Edgar. And um, huge congratulations on the on the doc. As I said, I can't wait to to get back and see it in the cinema when it's out at the end of the month as well. It's nice to see you. Thank you. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. When she's on her best behavior, don't be tempted by the favors soundtrack to the Sparks Brothers that's never turned back on Mother Earth, rounding off this first part of soundtracking with Edgar Wright. Next, it's the turn of Russell and Ron, with me to talk about both Edgar's documentary and their own movie, Annette, a musical about a stand-up comedian and an opera singer who have a child with a rare gift. Sounds wacky, but I loved it and highly recommend you see it as soon as you get the chance, which I think is going to be the first week of September. Now, before we hear from the boys, let's take in one of their songs from the film, All the Girls. All the girls I see look so great to me. What amazes me is what they see in me. All the girls I see in France and Italy or here in Rapungi, what do they see in me? And drunk, maybe that's why. Hard to imagine all these fucking men who hate themselves but want us to love them. All the girls I see look so great to me. But will I ever be lovable again? Thank you so much for taking the time though to, to do this. The documentary is it's so great and it's you know I, I love music documentaries and this just feels like something very new very kind of creative but so in keeping with with you guys and the the world of sparks and kind of what you are about it's got such creativity behind it 
And then I, I wanted to ask, first of all, because I imagine there's been lots of requests for documentaries over the years to tell your story and to explore the journey that you've been on. What was it about Edgar's approach and his storytelling? And what, how did he sell it to you? And how and what, what made you say yes? There, there have been quite a few people coming up to us through the years wanting to make a documentary. And both because, you know, we weren't really comfortable with what these people might have done just in a filmic way. And also just we, we in a general sense, we felt that a documentary wasn't necessary, that, uh, that what we do musically kind of says as much as needs to be said about us. But Edgar had come to a couple of our concerts in Los Angeles uh, several years back. And, and after the second one, he, he approached us about doing a documentary and, you know, partially because it was Edgar Wright and we really loved his films, but also just his kind of saying that he wanted in the documentary to not just focus on some mythic period in the past of ours, but that, that he felt that what we were doing even now was as strong as anything we've ever done. So, so that kind of approach was kind of, it's kind of, how we feel about ourselves, you know, whether whether it's right or wrong, other people can judge, but we're never kind of nostalgic in, in when we're thinking about what we're doing. And so, so you know, we, we said yes to Edgar where we didn't say yes to any anybody else. And uh, <laughs> we have faith in him as a filmmaker. And, you know, our only fear was just that, that when we did go ahead with this, that, that maybe since he, only has done narrative films before this that his first documentary with us being the recipients would would be kind of his one boring film but it it turned out (laughs) it turned out to be far from that i mean he he put in all the edgar wright touches but in a documentary form and so we were you know we were thrilled both stylistically but also just the the content of it that it was up to date because he's coming at it as a fan as well, and he puts himself in the film. I love that because, and he he very much makes it a fan film in a way that he involves so many fans of your journey throughout the years. That must have been lovely for you to, you know, because you said, Ron, that you don't look back. You don't kind of, it's all about kind of what's next sort of thing. But to actually allow yourself to take a moment to hear from fans be they be they you know all over the world or famous faces to hear their influence and their inspiration and their love for what you guys have done over the years must have been lovely to actually allow yourself to acknowledge and listen it was amazing you know it was was really amazing to to just be able to 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 hear all of those great people from different creative walks of life you know we had we had no idea that you know People like Mike Myers would even have heard of Sparks, let alone would be able to recite lyrics and analyze them from from one of our old albums. And the writer Neil Gaiman talking about album cover artwork of ours in such a you know in such an eloquent way. And and varied musicians from you know Flea of the Chili Peppers speaking really articulately about one of the lesser known Sparks albums, introducing Sparks and saying, you know, how much he loved that album. And then just the musicians were all from just 
such uh, disparate kind of genres, you know, from from Vince Clark to uh, to the Sex Pistols, you know, and everything kind of in between. So it was it was really uh, you know heartwarming to us to see that there were these people from different creative areas speaking mm. so eloquently about about Sparks. It's just you know amazing, and especially like you mentioned, uh, Edgar just being such a you know a great uh, fan of the band and his kind of his enthusiasm just sort of exudes off the screen uh, all of the time so it, you know it's really amazing for us yeah I think it's really lovely because he's almost allowed that enthusiasm and and genuine love for what you do to inspire his creativity within the film and that's influenced uh you know the format of the film and and what he's used be that turning you into kind of manga characters and, and all that kind of stuff and the, the wonderful visual way that he's chosen to to tell this story. Just before even doing the documentary, there was some overlap in our sensibilities. And so that it was fortunate enough, it wasn't a stretch for either him or us to have the documentary be the way it was because both of us are kind of leaning a certain direction in what we do, just kind of a really kinetic approach to to things and kind of an anything anything can work as long as it's done the right way within either a film or or music so it was a comfortable fit through the through the whole process Russell were you going to pick up on something there on the back sorry um uh no okay I forgot what I was going to say but I think I covered it were you part of this part of the process throughout the whole making of the of the doc, or did you, you know, obviously he was with you on going to different parts of the world and and being part of the film and and you know in terms of being interviewed and things, but did he keep you informed of of what he was doing and when, or did or how did that work? Well, we have you know we have so much faith in Edgar as a film director that you know normally in Sparks we're kind of we're our own uh, bosses and we can kind of dictate exactly what we want to have happen. And we, you know, and, and we do that, you know, gladly. And, and it's the only way, you know, we work more undemocratically in a certain, in, uh, in a certain way, but with, you know, when it's a film, we learn on both projects, obviously, when it, when you're working on a film, you're, you're entrusting your, your work, to another person, but you're doing that, you know, hopefully willingly because you, you, you're a fan of their, their work and you know what they do uh, creatively. So both with Annette and, and obviously with, with the documentary, we're just such fans of Edgar's work that we kind of wanted to stay out of the process. He obviously let us know along the way who we'd be interviewing and things like that. And like you mentioned, we, he came with us all around the world to Mexico city, the, London, Tokyo, Los Angeles filming us. So he and his team became kind of a part of our lives for the three years of filming of, of the documentary. So, um, you know, but it's it's all a question of trust. And we had 100% trust in Edgar and his films. And like Ron had mentioned from the beginning, we just hoped it would be as uh, carrying the Edgar Wright stamp as much as any of his other films that, that, he, that, it, that it wasn't going to be a, you know, uh, this was be the one outlier and be the dull, boring uh, documentary. But in fact, it, it did have all of the signature marks of his on it. Yeah, it's so um, bizarre. I'm, I'm in a, a hotel room above what used to be the old BBC studios where you would have 
been on top of the pops, which is 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 a is is a lovely synchronicity considering it's, it's in the film as well, which is um is is how we were introduced to well I was introduced to you as a as a a, a wee girl from Scotland who is you know interested in music and finding ways of telling stories through music as well and that's what I've always loved about your music is your storytelling is how you kind of create these worlds with every album and and like you say you mentioned the artwork and it is it's this whole package of the visuals be that the artwork or watching you perform on whether it's you know on on tv but and then the music and the characters and the stories that you create within that what inspires you both well I don't it's it never really is a specific thing uh, uh unless there's like you need to have an album done now that <laughs> but, but there isn't really a there isn't really a, an inspiration that kind of causes us to to want to go into the studio or even on or even a, an incident that that kind of um makes you want to write a song i mean it's just a general passion we have to do what we're doing it, it there isn't any kind of you know force other than just kind of an internal desire to to do it because you know we we realize we're in a different position than almost any other band at this stage of our of having so many albums where we're able to kind of honestly do pop music without it being kind of toned down and kind of self-reflective and so we just want to see how far we can we can push things and you know just working both within the song a uh, traditional song structures and also on longer narrative musical film in that kind of way you know we just have a passion just to just to do it there isn't anything there isn't any kind of answer there isn't any kind of specific thing I and mean, we were yeah. we're lucky that we have that and and we're lucky that we haven't lost that and we hope that we never do um i was lucky enough to watch annette last night and i had as i said the most beautiful experience watching that film i was just in awe of it i was it was such a gorgeous journey to go on what inspired that well we had done quite a few years ago we had done an, another narrative project called the seduction of ingmar bergman and we did that for the swedish national radio and we really enjoyed the process of doing something that wasn't in a traditional Sparks album format that was something more expansive and told an actual story. So we weren't able to tour with that. We we wanted to actually tour. We played one performance of it at the Los Angeles Film Festival a long time ago, but we weren't able to tour with it. So we came up with another idea that involved a fewer number of characters. And we already, we thought this would be Sparks' next album nine years ago and uh it was something that we were going to go on tour with actually ron would play the um, conductor char- character i would play the stand-up comedian character that adam driver portrays and we would bring along an extra a, a female opera singer who would do the role that marianne cotillard is doing then eight years ago we came to Cannes, where we are right now and we met Leos Carax, who had used one of our songs in his last film, Holy Motors. And we wanted to thank him for doing that. And we really love his films and thought there's a real kindred spirit in what he does cinematically to what Sparks does in, in our, with our music. And so when we got back to L.A., we said, oh, we should just send this project to Leos. 
expecting nothing, but more just because he's a fan of the band and wanting to, you know, keep them up to up to up to date about what we're doing. What was his reaction when you sent it to him initially? What did he did he did, did he just just kind of get back and go? Let's make it. Let's make a film. Well, not not immediately. He he, you know, he's he's generally even if he's based any of his films on outside material, he's written all his films. So, so we sent it to him and he said, this, this is really interesting. Let me think about this for a couple of weeks. And so he thought about it and the story had some kind of connection to him personally, as well as, you know, just in a creative kind of way. So he got back to us after a couple of weeks and said, I'd really like to direct this film, you know, with, with kind of the, provision that him being a very personal director, he would want to add some personal elements of, yeah. of this to to the work. But but in general it it kind of is what it was even nine nine years ago. I mean there are there are a couple of pieces that were added at his request. And then there's some some of the uh lyrics that are slightly altered but in general it you know the the pieces are are basically what was there uh nine nine years ago so you know it's it's taken a long time you know we he came to LA quite a few times we went to Paris quite a few times uh just kind of slightly tweaking things because he you know he you know he's amazing filmmaker and you just wants and he doesn't make a lot of films. And so he wants them to all be exact. And so, and then, you know, they're, they're always kind of hitches along the way with financing of any film, but, but uh, it, it all came together. And, you know, the, the cast is so, is oh. so brilliant, both Adam and Marion and, and Simon as well are just incredible in the, in the film. And, uh, we had a discussion about five years ago with with Adam. You know, it's you, you kind of are kind of thinking, well, what position am I at in to be able to tell Adam Driver how to do anything? You know, but we had a discussion just about the style of the singing, and mm. and that was like a key thing because we didn't want the film to be Broadway esque in kind yeah. of kind of way, like that all the singing had to be kind of naturalistic and, and toned down. And also that there wouldn't be any traditional choreography in the film, but Adam, you know, it, it's difficult because we lived with Russell singing it for so long. So you kind of think, is this going to work at all with any, but, you know, he was able to do not mimicking what Russell did, but kind of a, a parallel universe kind of. of yeah what that part was and so we we were thrilled with what he did we love each other so much we love each other so much we're scoffing at logic this wasn't the plan Love each other so much. We love each other so much. 
not knowing the kind of backstory in terms of how it was written, I watching the film, you can't imagine any other actors being in those roles because what they bring to them is just extraordinary. Adam's presence and the intensity of that relationship. And and like you say, it's you for, you kind of forget that they're they're singing sometimes because you're so in it with them. You're on this incredible journey and such a fan of Marion's as well. And it's so great to see her in a role like this. You know, I love the um, Levion Rose when she played Edith Piaf and, and to see her kind of uh just to kind of step back on that stage as well. It's a real, real, real joy to watch. Yeah, I mean, so the, emotional. the chemistry between the the two of them was amazing. And, and you know, that, you know, what you mentioned about kind of forgetting that they're singing, I mean, that I think is, it. it isn't diminishing the impact of the music. No, not at all. To us, it's like uh, enhancing the, the emotions of, of everything. I mean, one, one touchstone for us as far as a, not even doing something in the style of that, but just the effect of it was was the Jacques Demy, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, where it's kind of wall to wall singing, but done in settings where after a while you do kind of forget that it's being sung and and people singing it while they're working on cars and all of that, and and so stylistically it, it has no resemblance to that, but just as far as what what a music a movie musical can be that that was more of what we were going after rather than a you know kind of a hollywood um musical and so you know we we couldn't have been happier with all with all the performances and you know just Leo's character is so brilliant and he, you know he hasn't made that many films and for him to focus he doesn't he what through the whole process he didn't have like 10 projects going on, you know, at, at the same time or thinking about he would he was focused on this one on this one thing. And I think that was the key to the part of the of the strength of the final of the final film, just his yeah. his focus. It's I think it's theatrical background because he's obviously got such a strong connection with the theatre. He's brought so much of that to 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 this role. Was there much kind of on those particularly with Adam and those stand-up scenes as well, you know, that that there are musical little musical interludes with, as it was within part of that. And it looks so natural. It looks so responsive to the audience, to his movement, to his emotion. Was all that scripted or or was there encouragement for him to improvise in any way with with that sort of side of it? The the first monologue was more scripted out and is more similar to the original version we had. And the second monologue was Leos had a lot of input into that. And, 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 you know, and a lot of it was letting Adam kind of do his thing for the, for the second monologue, especially. So those were, that was one piece in particular that, you know, for, there was a decision was made by Leos to have it be less of a musical scene and and more of a you know more letting adam just do his thing so it's kind of an outlier within the film but it's uh you know it's really extraordinary kind of acting that 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 adam brings to those those scenes and like you mentioned throughout the film he's just kind of a uh, pretty astounding in, in in a role that we can't remember any role of his being as kind of intense as that that role that he that he has in this film so yeah yeah I mean we've I think we've we've all seen the his brilliant 
ability as a, a performer, but this kind of just, it lays it all out on a plate, kind of, you know, it's like a cordon bleu chef's best meal. It's like, oh, yes, this is extraordinary. And the songs are so catchy. I have been singing um, So May We Start, like, for the past 24 hours, like, in my head. I kind of woke up this morning feeling like I'd kind of woken up and, you know, kind of, I was like, I almost wanted to start my day by singing it. It's time to start My time to start They hope that it goes the way It's supposed to go There's fear in them all But they can't let it show They're underprepared But that may be enough The budget is large But still, it's not enough So may we start You've, you've created a fantastic collection and a real array of, of styles as well within this. Even though this is a musical film, there are lots of different musical textures to these songs that you've, you've created for the film. Was that the intent? Well, we just through all that we've done in all <laughs> of our albums, we've kind of gone through so many different styles on those that we have a lot of tools that we can draw on and, and we didn't want to, you know, you never know how many times you can get a movie musical made. So we didn't want to hold anything back, <laughs> put in everything that we we knew. And, you know, the song, So May We Start, it was this film, uh, was the opening film at the Cannes Film Festival. And kind of the first thing that anybody here heard was the song, So May We Start. And it, and it almost came became like a unofficial anthem for the whole festival it, it it was really it really seemed inspiring to people in a in a more general way than just the opening piece of Annette so you know it was, it was really it was really touching for us before we run out of time I wanted to quickly ask about the character of Annette I mean I, do, I don't want to talk about it in, in any great detail really because I don't want to spoil anything for people who want to go into the film so I don't know if there is a way of you talking about the character in a way that doesn't give much away it's really hard yeah well the Annette is um the child of this famous couple Adam Driver's character who is a famous stand-up comedian whose career is sort of taking a bit of a downturn turn and he's married to now a surprisingly married to a world-renowned opera singer that's Marianne Cotillard's role. And her career is sort of really blossoming while his is kind of on the way down. And so the two of them have this child. And like you said, without giving away too much, the child eventually inherits this, uh, an ability, a unique ability that was uh, sort of handed down to her from her mother. And sort of once that starts to happen, the things in the film also start to get into a situation that is it's uh you know it's things start to 
tumble fast for uh, for the two uh, characters, and then the young child is the uh, the one that sort of uh, this bridge between the two parents in a, in a certain way. But yeah, it's hard to hard to tell talk too much about it without. Giving- <laughs> But hopefully that left it pretty vague. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's such a clever way of, I, I think the way that the child is portrayed is so, it's so clever. It's so unique and it, it, it's, um, it's really thoughtful as well. Some, a lot of that has to do with, with Leos because he really took a chance on the way that Annette is portrayed in the film and the naturalistic way that all the actors react to Annette is, is just a sign of, some amazing acting. Yeah. You've had this flirtation with, with films in the past. And we, you know, we, we, Edgar goes into that within the documentary, which is, is, is a, is a really interesting part. And, you know, a journey that you were, you really wanted to take that didn't, you know, didn't come to fruition, but this final, this wonderful synergy of these two films that we, we get to, to enjoy. And, and, oh, I really hope that this is the first of, of many, many films that you're you're able to to make because it's it's really something special and it's so different as well it's like nothing I've ever it's like so many of my favorite experiences at cinema kind of coming together well you must feel very happy that this world has finally has happened you know you've finally got the opportunity yeah. to do it yeah we we are and in, in a certain way amongst Edgar's many theses in the documentary <laughs> one I think he feels really vindicated that that as a result of a couple of past flirtations with movie projects that didn't come to light, that now he's able to say and show in the documentary that, aha, see with perseverance and, uh, you know, just a lot of fortunate circumstances that in the end, we kind of uh, were all vindicated and we have the opening film at the Cannes Film Festival. And I think Edgar was really just uh, really ecstatic that that, happened and you know and and like you mentioned we or you wondered about that this won't be the last uh movie musical project we're actually working on a new one so uh just energized by this experience and also by the you know just the reaction to to annette and 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 to the documentary and so we're now in have started another project so there will be one in in the future as well as a new sparks album we're kind of pretty the new sparks album as well so brilliant amazing and um, ron and russell thank you so much for your time it's it really is a a genuine treat to get to chat to you and thank you for for allowing edgar to tell your story uh, and also for this beautiful beautiful film and hope to see you in person soon at some point thank you so much take care bye, bye. true love always
From the soundtrack to Annette, that's True Love Always Finds a Way. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Edgar Wright and the Sparks Brothers, Russell and Ron. My huge thanks to all three of those fine gentlemen for taking the time to talk to me. Sparks Brothers is in cinemas now. Please go and see it. It is highly entertaining. Whether you are a massive Sparks fan or whether you don't really know that much about them, it is fabulous. Edgar's done a great job. Uh, You'll also be able to watch Annette uh, when it comes out. I think it's the first week of September, the 3rd of September. Highly recommend that too. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes of the podcast, including my two previous conversations with Edgar. You'll also be able to link to Spotify playlists for every single show in which we list the songs in the order they appear. All that can be found at edithbowman.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and keep your eyes out on our YouTube channel for shows I put together with guests from the podcast and some others, well, who don't quite fit in. Um, I'm going to actually stick up Kate Herron and Natalie Holt from last week uh, because we got such a great response to them on the show that I just wanted to uh, share our chat with you visually because we filmed it together in the same room um, at a place called Spiritland in King's Cross. Massive thanks to Chris, our engineer there, for uh, filming that for us. So I'll stick that up on the YouTube channel in the next few days. Next up, now this is slightly big news for us because next week we are kind of round about that date celebrating our fifth anniversary. We have been making this podcast for five years. Ben, can you believe it? It's extraordinary really I can't quite believe it myself because we started this Ben and I um, as a passion project we wanted to start a conversation about music and film and so we decided to launch this podcast and thanks to you guys and your continued support and the support of all of our guests who have appeared and hopefully who will appear on the show we genuinely couldn't do it without you and we started this show episode one back in August 2016 with Mr Ben Wheatley Uh, who we are eternally grateful for his support throughout the years on this podcast. So much so that next week on the show, he returns for a fifth sitting. Woohoo! But he's also joined by his producer partner, Andy Stark. So to celebrate our fifth birthday next week on the show, Ben Wheatley returns and his producing partner, Andy Stark, to talk about the film that they made in covid Oh, so good in the earth. Ben Whitley, Andy Stark celebrating our fifth birthday next week on the show. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.